Well, we used to have a greeting time around this point. I don't know if we need, with all the kids still in the room, if we need, like, like pull out the wiggles and do, like, uh, shake, shake it out. Move, you know, father, what is it? Father Abraham had many sons and left hand, right hand, all that kind of stuff to help us out. Um, parents, we do know this is a challenging season for you in worship, and there's much grace um, for you, uh, including for my family. Right, kiddos? All right. Well, I'm going to sit... At least at the beginning uh, this morning, I sat through a bunch of those video sermons uh, over the course of the last couple months, and I found I kind of liked it. Um, But who knows how long I'll be sitting here. I can't imagine I'm going to be able to sit for very long. I'll get excited about something and kind of want to stand up and, you know, gyrate. Um, So, so, yeah, we'll we'll sit for a little bit. Well, that being said, I I want you to know that I missed this. It has been three months, um, and while... Preaching to a camera is, um, it was nice to be able to continue to preach God's word, um, to see faces, to preach the human beings that I know with real human being problems about a real God is so much more fun. Hey, I want to say a few things first. Happy Father's Day uh, to all of you dads. Welcome. We're glad that you're here with us. Also, uh, be aware that uh, this is Chris and Taylor Jack's last Sunday with us. They are moving away. No, that's next. Is it next Sunday or is this Sunday? Next Sunday. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, it's 6 a.m. But this is your last time in worship with us. Okay, so this counts. Okay. Yeah, they're going to a wedding and then they're getting out of Dodge next week, and that's that's how, that's what they're that's what they're doing. So. Uh, that, so if you get a chance, uh, do a social distance uh, greeting and a goodbye to them today. Uh, and then also, uh, Jenny Harris is going to be getting married this coming Saturday, as well as Claire Paquette. So big weekend around uh, here. We got people leaving, got people getting hitched. It's uh, a lot of fun happening around King's Chapel in our life. Morgan, is this your last Sunday too? Okay. All right. Well, you get your own special Sunday next Sunday uh, before uh, Morgan goes off to seminary as well. So we're sending people out to get married and to go to seminary. Uh, it's great times. Uh, the Lord's, the kingdom continues to move forward uh, even in the midst of this season. Well, we're in the Psalms. And so if you want to turn this morning to Psalm chapter 90, Psalm chapter 90 is where we are going to be. And we're working through a number of Psalms this summer, and this one, um, we've entitled this series simply A Singing Theology, A Singing Theology, and really what we're trying to do in this is to look up. It's, it's hard to keep your eyes looking up right now, isn't it? There are a lot of things clamoring for and rightly deserving our attention going on around us. And they scream for our attention every moment. But if we don't look up to an unchanging God who is powerful and internal, then here are your options. You can be overwhelmed with grief over what's going on in this world. Or you can retreat to the comfortable callousness of cynical apathy. Those are your choices. Or you can look up. So let's choose that one. Psalm chapter 90 is where we are going to be this morning. It'll be up on the screen for you as I read out loud. Hear God's word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Oh, by the way, this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God, is part of God's word here. It's the title. So it's a prayer of Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, 
you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. But yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The grass wither and the flower fades, right? And so do we. But the word of our God, it stands forever. Colin, I'm a, I feel like I'm a bit loud, and I don't know if it's, there's not enough chairs in here to soak up the sound, but uh, I feel tingy. It's good? Okay. I, it's just I'm learning Ed how to hear things like Ed does. So like a, like a dog whistle. It's... Uh, so Psalm chapter 90 is written by Moses, and while um, there's some debate about this, uh, it's most likely written very late in Moses' life, and which means most likely this is our oldest psalm written by the oldest psalmist we have in the Psalter. It's written by an old man who's preparing to die. This is a man well acquainted with the uh, brevity of life and, and growing closer to death himself, looks back with the perspective that really an, only an old man or an old woman could have. And he sees in the context of a life where things are never permanent here, are they? They're always shifting and moving. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. In the midst of that context, he recognizes this wondrous truth, that his true home is the Lord himself, and that that home is going nowhere because God is everlasting to everlasting. It's great for Moses, right? Moses is a guy who has to tramp around in the desert with a bunch of complaining children for 40 years. Wouldn't you long for home? And he longs for home, and his home it is his Lord, and there is no changing. God, you see, God is not a part of the, the, the created stuff. That's what it means for God to be everlasting. It's from everlasting, that means there was never a time in which he did not exist, to everlasting, which means there's never a time in which he will not exist. He is the Alpha, and he is the Omega. You see, kids, God is, shall we say, he's a geriatric. He is old. But that doesn't even begin to describe it, does it? I mean, you know, there are a couple areas of theology that come up in our family devotional times fairly consistently because there's one particular, an eight-year-old male who has a more intellectual bent and inclination, 
and he likes to ask questions, and he has seen right through some of the most difficult questions of Christianity, so I'm always getting questions about the nature of the Trinity or the nature of Jesus and how he can be God and yet praying to God while he's here on earth. These are confusing questions. And you know what I do as a father, just to make you all feel better? I go, it's a mystery, son. It's God. We aren't supposed to be able to get our minds around him. But here, a question that he asked, maybe more than any other, is about the eternal nature of God. He, 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 it goes something like this. Cade will ask, he'll ask, so when was God? No. Uh, when, when was he? Well, when was he? And finally, I'll just get frustrated and be like, when did he start? And, I, and I'll say, well, son, he, he always has been. And you can kind of begin to see him space out. And his eyes glaze over, and there's the faint smell of burning brain cells <laughs> as he tries to get his mind around this idea of an everlasting God. You see, the nature of God, in particular these aspects of God that are a mystery to us, I call them uncomfortable comforts. They're uncomfortable because we cannot get our minds around them. But the root of all of our comforts as Christians is found in these truths. For example, with, unless God is eternal, guess what? His word is not eternal. Unless God is eternal and everlasting, his plans are not eternal and everlasting. Unless God is eternal and everlasting, then his presence with us is not eternal or everlasting. And so this is where this, this prayer, it's a prayer of Moses, it says at the beginning. It begins here. Verse 1, you have been our dwelling places in all generations. And he says, this Lord, who is our everlasting domicile, God is a permanent fixed address for us, and he is our dwelling place. And he makes his everlasting nest touch down into each generation to where we get a taste of this mystery that we cannot understand, but it roots us and grounds us in a world that is of shifting sand and is always changing around us. And So here we have a Psalm of Moses written by a man who has weathered the storms of life and seen both victories and defeats. He has wandered through a wilderness for years upon years. He experienced ups and downs, the death of good friends who have come and gone, and he has found in his Lord a home to which he can return for all of eternity. That is the truth that we're looking at this morning. This attribute of the eternality of God. But out of this truth and in this prayer flows two further truths that we're going to now look at in depth. The everlasting nature of God is the attribute, but here's the application to us, that we are going to live in light of that. And so Moses pens the rest of his prayer in view of the God who is everlasting to everlasting. And in view of the everlasting nature of God, Moses affirms two truths for us this morning. And here's the first one. We're going to title it this way. The first truth, he affirms first a hard truth that if swallowed will make you wise. A hard truth that if swallowed will make you wise. All the verses from verses 3 through 12, after talking about the everlasting nature of God, he then dives into this idea of how, well, we are not. And here's the hard truth that has to be swallowed. That life is short and that your life is frail. In verse 3, it says we are described as dust. In verse 5, that we are like a dream. That the people after us will wonder if we ever really existed. 
In verses 5 and 6, we are like grass that fades and withers in a day. And this is particularly understood and vivid in the description of someone who lives in the Near East where a night rain could cause a carpet of grass to rise up in the desert, but then a squelching sun will kill it in the day. It's there in the beginning of the day and is gone by nightfall. And verse 10 reminds us that not only is this life frail and short, but that the 70 or 80 years that we have is full of what? Toil and tears and suffering. You see, we can fight and scratch and claw and we can work out and we can diet and we can do something called keto or keto or whatever you want to call it. You can, you can cut out the carbs and you can work out every day of your life only to scrap out a fresh 80. And it reminds us that not only is that the case, but we are constantly reminded that even that last decade, we're pretty much just spending it with constant reminders that we're circling the drain. My wife and I started watching a show this past week that it's, a, it's kind of a, a comedy show, and it's based around two old couples. And what just tickled me silly about the show is that their social settings are always revolves around going to funerals. So you spend all of these, spend this, this, this few decades, and then life begins to go down, and you spend all of your time at funerals and in doctor's offices trying to waylay the inevitable. But the, heart, the truth about the frailty and the shortness of life, it actually gets harder here. Verses 3 through 6 talks about the frailty of life. And then 7 through 10 or 7 through 9 really talks about why life is so frail, which is this. And this is an important truth that we need to grasp this morning. The truth is not that you're just that your life is frail, but your life is frail because you're guilty of sin. There has always been a connection. Our frailty is actually due to our guilt before God. Let me see if I can root this in the scriptures. In verse 7 through 9, it says this, For we are brought to an end by what? Your anger. Why is he angry? Because we have sinned against him. By your wrath. Again, we are dismayed. You have set your iniquities before us, or before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all our days pass away under your wrath. That means it's the pressurized life of the wrath of God that presses us into death, that makes life frail and small. Moses is trying to show us that the death is, has always been linked to sin and is actually the cause of it. Sin is the cause of our death. We die because Adam sinned and because we sin ourselves. Paul brings us back up in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says this, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through what? Sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Are you aware that sin always leads to death? It leads to the death of dreams, the deaths of hopes and plans and relationships and health, and eventually even to that ultimate spiritual death, which is separation from God forever. Sin leads to death. And perhaps we can understand hell just a little bit better from this perspective. We struggle with the concept of hell. It is utterly uh, disgusting to us. And frankly, it ought to be. It's supposed to be. If you're not distressed by the idea of eternality of hell, right? This has always distressed me in my, as I've thought about it, right? There's a sense in which why am I getting eternal punishment for a life that is so brief? But then you actually have to remember what sin is and why death enters in. Death enters in because sin is a sin against an eternal God. And therefore, there is eternal wrath against sinners who have offended an eternal God. So Moses ends this part of his prayer by clearly outlining for us there's a crossroads that this truth puts into your life and into your thinking. 
Here's the crossroads, verse 11 and 12. The brevity of life because of our guilt of sin. Verse 11 says this. So who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Verse 11 is acknowledging the fact that we don't like to think about our frailty. We will do anything to not acknowledge the fact that our days here are numbered, that we could be gone tomorrow. And even more, we try to get away from thinking about our guilt and about the awaiting end of life. And we go to extreme measures in order to remove ourselves from the discomfort of having to acknowledge the fact that we won't live forever. This used to be something you couldn't get away from, right? People used to die. It's just one generation ago. You know where they would do it, the body, when you, a family member died? They would present it in your living room. Now people go to die in these anesthetized places called hospitals. We hardly ever see the bodies. The idea of the frailty of life is just not there in front of us. In fact, we want to push it as far away from us as possible. But here is the thing. And this is the other, another important truth for us in this, within this. The willingness to swallow the hard truth and painful truth of our frailty and guilt will be the difference between living a life of foolishness or living a life of wisdom. Embracing the fact that you will not live forever is a crossroads truth that must be embraced if you're going to live a life either of foolishness or a life of wisdom. The rejection of this truth will make you a fool. One of the things that social philosophers have recognized about modern Western thought is that we, in the last hundred years, have begun more and more to idolize youth and youthfulness. It used to be that you honored age. Now we've moved everything and revolved everything around staying young and honoring the young and marketing to the young. Why do we idolize youth and youthfulness? Well, what they connected to, actually a guy named Charles Taylor, who's a modern Western thinker, connects this idea of our idolizing of youth and youthfulness to the fact that we've gotten rid of an eternal God. And when you get rid of an eternal God, and therefore when you get rid of an eternal God, you get rid of everlasting life, now that puts a lot of pressure on the few short years you have here. And it becomes entirely about how do I soak up this 70 or 80 years of my life with as much as I can possibly get out of it. And so in getting rid of this, we become obsessed with youthfulness. And it makes us foolish, doesn't it? I'm going to describe it and illustrate it this way. But it's a low-hanging and it's a mean and ugly illustration. I'm sorry, but I do think it helps bring out the obvious foolishness of our clinging to youthfulness. I'll say it this way. Do the wealthy and the elite, and this is going to make me sound curmudgeon the, the Hollywood elites types, do they know that the rest of us can totally see that they're getting Botox and plastic surgery? <laughs> like they do understand that we notice, right? That, that, their, that their face is becoming more and more set in stone, that we can see it, that, that, they, that generally, who is it, who, the, Kellyanne Conway this week, she showed up back, she's been gone for a couple months and she suddenly shows back up and suddenly a face, there was no wrinkles, no wrinkles. She went to the beach and came back with no wrinkles. And we're having things implanted all over that we can, they don't really know we can tell. And they know that generally speaking, we do think they look ridiculous. They do know that, right? That, that when you are 78 years old and you have a wrinkleless face, face, you don't look beautiful, you look silly. We do understand, they do understand 
that we think that. But the psalmist does not want us to, so the psalmist, it's foolishness to live your life constantly trying to say, I will look younger, I will be younger, I will try to not acknowledge the fact that I'm getting older. But the psalmist doesn't want us to live as, as though he is going to, we, we are going to live forever, but rather to acknowledge our mortality. Why? Because that is where the heart of wisdom begins. You see, one way to define wisdom is this. Wisdom is the skill of living life in an authentic way. And part of being authentic is recognizing the authentic truth that you are not going to be here forever. And that frankly, there's really not anything you can do about it. That's an authentic truth. And that you live your life with a skill living in that, in view of that reality, that life doesn't last. And so, here's the application that he wants us to have. That we would cry out for wisdom. That we would recognize that we would come face to face with the fact that we're not going to live forever. And here's the call, especially to those of you who are younger, don't waste your life. Your life is not here forever. There is a tendency to think for us to think, I got time, I got time, I got time. I can do that later. So, but no, don't do, say those words over and over again. Say, no, I will seize today. I have today. God has given me today. But not only do I not want to waste your life with foolish living, I want you to know that your frailness, your mentality is connected to the guilt of sin in your life. And true wisdom is recognizing that I live under the wrath of God and therefore I need to go to God and cry out to him for help saying, will you be merciful to me? Because I am here today and gone tomorrow. And so I need your mercy. And so the, 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 the hard point of application I want you to have here is you pray, you cry out for mercy. The heart of wisdom to say is I need to find a God who will be merciful to me, who will be, who have pity on me. We, we cry out for mercy, not tomorrow, but today. But today, right now, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. Now this sounds like old kind of fire and brimstone type preaching, but this is actually... Part of what the Bible does talk about this. You are not guaranteed to drive home. Respond today to the grace of fear. To the fear of the brevity of life and the wrath of God. To the grace of a realistic view of life that acknowledges that I will not live forever and that I am a sinner deserving God's wrath. Now this leads us, praise the Lord, to our second point. Because the first one was mean and hard. But True. The second is this, though, that the second truth we need to recognize is in view of the everlasting nature of God, Moses affirms for us a sweet truth that if you digest, it will digest this truth, it will give you purpose. The last section of Psalm 90, verses 13 through 17, is the continuation of Moses' prayer and view the fact that there is an everlasting God and view the fact that he is not going to live for all eternity. And then so he cries out to an appeal of asking for an outpouring of God's grace. God, you've made my life short. Because of your wrath, therefore, you're the only place I can go and find mercy. And what does he say? He says, you have been given the grace of, given the grace and wisdom of fear. Now the psalmist prays for the grace that would relieve those exact same fears. That sounds familiar. You see, the prayer of Moses, he asked for pity. In verse 12, 
and 13. In verse 13, he knows that he is guilty and the sin of guilt is behind his frailty. And so he pleads for mercy. Mercy not to receive the math, the wrath that he knows his sin deserves. Then in verse 14, he says, pray that you, we would be satisfied with your steadfast love. That's his, that covenant word for God's love, his hesed love, which means it is a unending love. You know what you most need in the face of God's unending wrath? is for God's unending love to show up too. You see, just as the eternal wrath of God flows out of his eternal essence, so does the eternal love of God flow out of his essence. This nature of who he is. And you know what? The prayer of Moses is answered ultimately. This longing for mercy and for the steadfast love of the Lord that might usher Moses in out of the frailty of life and into eternal life is answered ultimately in the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to turn now to the classic passage on the resurrection in the New Testament. Here's what 1 Corinthians 15, it's a little bit lengthy. We're going to read 19 to 26, and then drop down and read a few more at the end of the chapter. Here's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because you should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. And if you don't do that, you've wasted this life. But if there's a resurrection, we don't have to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam, our father, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ first, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then in the last part where how 1 Corinthians 15 ends, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, this is verse 54, and the mortal puts on immortality. That's you and me. We're mortals who will die, but we will put on immortality the immortality of Christ's resurrection, then he shall come, it shall come to pass that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Again, right? Sin is behind death. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the sweet truth to digest that we are to chew on every day, that the scriptures are telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ is promising you something better than eternal youth. He is promising you eternal life. The eternal love that deals with the eternal and just wrath of God, where God in his eternal everlasting love comes and drinks the cup of God's everlasting wrath for us so that we might have nothing left for us but eternal life in him. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us the rest of the story of Psalm 90. Psalm 90 points out to us that we have an everlasting to an everlasting God, that we live in an eternal frame of reference. But 1 Corinthians 15 gives us the rest of the story. The everlasting God has taken on flesh and blood, took on your sins that caused your frailty and your death. And he defeated death so that you and I can live in immortality with him for all of eternity. The good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is central to Christianity because it means that our death has been defeated. Christ has been raised and so we will be raised for all of eternity. That is better than Viagra and hair plugs and Botox and endless days in the gym. Eternal life with him.
Look at how Psalm 19 now, or not Psalm 90 ends, verses 16 and 17, because I want to drive this towards some specific applications for a few of you. But here's how he ends his prayer. In view of God's pity, his mercy, and his steadfast love that drives God to come and pour out his eternal love to save us from his eternal wrath, it says this. Now, verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants. What is God's work? His redeeming work of the gospel. That's the work. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. And then in verse 17, it says this. This is Moses' final request. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And so now establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Here's the implication of the, of the sweet truth. That if you will chew on the truth of the resurrection... That for those that trust in Jesus Christ, the everlasting love of Jesus has swallowed up the eternal wrath of God for us so that we might have eternal life. The implication for thus right now is this. That means that your work today has eternal purpose. Your life today has eternal purpose. Which means whether you're young or old or middle-aged or whether your job is mundane and small or great and grand, whether you're lauded as beautiful or shunned for ugliness, it does not matter because ultimately your life is caught up within an eternal everlasting story. And it means your 70 or 80 years of toil and blood and sweat and tears, a life that seems to be a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow, this life is now caught up into the purposes of eternity. That means your life matters. And let me apply this to a couple groups of people here this morning. First, to those of you who are young, I'm going to restate what I've already said to you. Paul says that if the resurrection is not true, if this life is all we have, then the idol of youth is correct. And as Paul says, you eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. What is the message of the world to a life that says all you have is 70 or 80 years? You're 20. You should have as many sexual partners as you can possibly get now. Because you look good now. And in 40 years, maybe not so much. Enjoy it now. Because you got to squeeze it out while you're looking good and feeling good. Sow your wild oats because this is all you have. But do you see that the gospel actually frees you if you are a teenager, if you're in high school and in college and in your 20s, not to look at your life as saying, how can I squeeze the most pleasures out of my life right now? But how can I invest my life for eternal purposes? Again, don't waste your life. It means what you do at 16 matters as much as what you do when you're 46. Because all your life is caught up into God's grand story. Do you give yourself not to vapid, mindless pleasures that are here today and gone tomorrow, but instead, this is why we have eternal teenagehood, adolescence. Because we've said, why would you want to move out of adolescence? This is all we have. But if we have an eternal life, you know what you say? My life is caught up into a grand purpose, and so you know what I'm going to do? I might be 19 or 22 or 26, but I'm going to take on responsibility. And that responsibility may stress me out so much that it gives me gray hairs and wrinkles on my forehead, but I'm going to take on responsibility because I'm living my life for an eternal purpose. And so you embrace disciple-making and you embrace missions, and you embrace really hard work, and you embrace child rearing, and you commit to the really hard work of being committed to one person. 
You've been given this life to partake in God's everlasting story, so I would say seize the day. Second, for those of you who are older, I won't dare define what older is. And Jesus, the steadfast love of God is with you. So here's what I would say to you. You can embrace the weaknesses and limitations that you are feeling increasingly more every single day of your life. Because Psalm 90 has said, the truth is this, you've always been limited. You've never been promised tomorrow. This is, you're simply coming to terms with life as it is, not in the illusion or delusion that you're gonna have many years of health and wealth. But you get to realize the joy of the fact that God is always using the wisdom of weakness and that he uses it in powerful ways, and that while you may be increasingly experience weakness and suffering, that God still has you here for a purpose. Here's a William M. Taylor, who was a well-known Scottish preacher who became pastor of a fairly large late 19th century church in New York City, said this after he was forced to quit preaching from a, after he had a massive stroke. He wrote, so long as we are here, we are required by him for something. Let us therefore find out what that is and do it. And while we do it, let us pray that God may establish it so that it may remain to bless posterity. Just as I said to 16-year-olds that your life, every day of your life matters as much as every day when you're 46, those who are older, you live in a world that idolizes youth and therefore one of the messages of the world is to say that you matter less and less and less. And with the truth of the gospel and the truth of this message is that your life at 66 matters just as much as your life did at 16. It's caught up in the grand purposes of God. And lastly, I would say this, to those who are in the dog days of vocation, you in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, wrestling through long hours, questioning the worth and value of your work and your toil in this world, understand this, God does not waste the lives of his children. He is accomplishing more than we can see on this side of eternity, and so here's my call to you. Be faithful in whatever the Lord has given you to carry out for today. No matter how noble or grand or mundane or hidden, no matter how many people are complaining at you or carping at you, no matter how much praise or criticism you get, you'd be faithful today. There's an old story in Christianity. It's, it's, it's quite likely that it's apocryphal, but it goes like this. An early Christian, perhaps in the 200s or 300s AD, was out plowing in a field, and another believer came along with one of those annoying what-if questions. And, and he, he asked, what would you do if Jesus was returning in just another hour? And now this fellow was one of those incredibly intense, earnest folks that thought that seizing the day meant that there are only a few activities that, in which any self-fulfilling, uh, passionate Christian could be participating in if God is about to come back any moment. That you should sprint through every, every single day with your hair on fire. Well, the man who had been pushing his plow quietly looked away after receiving this question and thought for a minute and then turned back and said, I would finish the furrow. Because if it was good enough for God to give me the job to do this morning, if I find out he's coming back tonight, it means it's still good enough for me to do right now. And I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do because if Jesus is coming, then it is worth continuing doing what he has called me to do right now. If God called you to a task, whether he's coming back today or in 10,000 days, then keep doing the task that he's given you to do. 
You may have been given a small task to play in his grand story. Great. Play your parts. God's eternality has imbued even our most frustrating and mundane labors with significance and worth and purpose for it is caught up in his eternal purposes. You know how Paul ends his treatise on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15? I I cut it off right before the last verse. Last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 58 says this. Therefore, my my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in what? Work. The work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your toil is not in vain. It means your work is not in vain. And may I also say this, one of the struggles of our vocations and our labors and our seeking to carry out the mission and passions that God has given us is we look around and we see what we're doing and the, the moth and rust of this world just seems to destroy everything we try to accomplish. I have, I have probably cleaned my house 45 times this week. And I have, I have the embodiment of the law of entropy, entropy living in my house in the form of a four-year-old that destroys things faster than I can put them back together. Did you know that at the very core of the curse, God says, you will labor and you will toil and things will no, not go correctly. You will plow the fields, you'll plant, and bugs will eat the plants. My wife, has to, she checks her garden probably eight, nine times a day, mostly because she's trying to get away from the four-year-old that is causing disaster inside the house. But every single day, she's out there eight or nine times just to try to do this so she can find these things called Japanese beetles and put them in soapy water. And she, to, and she is fighting a battle that, frankly, she is somewhat losing. And she checks it all day and every day. Why? Because the things of this world, moth and rust, destroy. Not only that, but even worse, our sin, your sin, my sin, the world's sin gets in the way, doesn't it? So let me give you an illustration. Can you imagine being the challenge of being a law enforcement officer right now? Where your labors and you're seeking out to carry out the mission and passions that God has given you in the midst of imperfection, in the midst of others making mistakes, in the midst of others criticizing you, I actually had a law enforcement officer in church this week text asking for prayer because he's considering going into another vocation. Why? Because of the, it's so frustrating, isn't it? You try to be faithful, other people ruin your good name, other people heap critique and vitriol towards you. Or what if you're a person who longs to see racial justice happen in our land? to see the long wounds healed, and yet you find yourself in a movement that is full of imperfections and people who have brought humanistic and secular ideologies into the movement. Your longings are for the kingdom, and yet you have to come alongside those who don't long for the kingdom. And so what? Other Christians carpet you. How dare you connect with these people with their horrific ideologies? And so you wonder, can I continue marching in a movement with so many imperfections and flaws? Or perhaps you're a parent in parenting. Well, frankly, you stink at it. Anger is there. You feel equipped to meet the challenges and the needs of your children. Do you give up? Do you throw in the towel? Do we only as Christians participate in those things that are without flaw already? Well, understand this. If we are only allowed to participate, Drew, be quiet. If we are only allowed to participate in those things that are already perfected, then you might as well just go ahead and leave the world because it will not be that way until Jesus comes back 
To you wrestling with these things, listen to this story closely. It is the story of a little man named Niggle. J.R. Tolkien writes the story of Niggle, and Tolkien writes the story when he was experiencing writer's block in the midst of his big novel, The Lord of the Rings. And as he was in the middle of it, he just couldn't finish it. He kept correcting and correcting and couldn't figure out how to finish this massive work that he was so discouraged and frustrated and despaired that he might never get it done. And it was then that he wrote this little story called Leaf by Niggle. Leaf as an L-E-A-F on a tree. It's about an artist, and he's in a little town, and the town has a public building. And they ask Niggle, the artist, to do a mural on the side of the public building. And he takes the money, and he begins to work. He goes on for months and months, and then he goes on for years and years. And when people walk by, they see that all he has done is one little part of the side of the building in which he has drawn nothing but a singular leaf. And he just can't get it correct. It's pretty clear that he's trying to draw a tree, but all he has done is draw this one little leaf, and they start to mock him. They say, what's going on, Niggle? We spent all this money. It's been a long time. Where's the meal? And he says, I'm working on it. I just, I just can't get it right. I'm working on it. I'm day and night. Well, then he dies. And he's on a train to heaven, and the train pulls into the station at heaven, and he sees off to the side of the station something, and he runs to it. And this is what Tolkien says he saw. Before him stood a tree, his tree, the tree that he never could finish, and now it was, it was finished in all of its perfections. Its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind in just the way that Niggle had so often envisioned but had so often failed to catch in his art. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide and said, it's a gift of the Lord. His tree, all his labors that accomplished what appeared to be only one imperfect drawing of one little leaf was now found complete because God has come to fill up what is lacking in you, not simply just your unrighteousness, but in all the weaknesses of our brokenness. We read in our daily Bible reading as a church, if you're not doing it, you should do it. They're fabulous. Andy's doing a great job with them. We're reading in 1 Peter right now. Dan's teaching a class on it. You have no excuse. And it said this in our second day this week, in verses three and four, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So you get eternal life. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In this world, your, your work may seem small and mundane and perfect, and it's defiled by your sin and by the sin of others, and every, these things just bugger everything up, doesn't it? It muddles all of our work. But our everlasting God is working in you and through you, and he will redeem your work and your life so that one day, like Niggle, you will see the work of your hands there before you, undefiled, imperishable, and everlasting. Praise be to our everlasting God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is, um, it is discomforting to come face to face with a God who is eternal. It makes steam come out of our ears. But Lord, would you, would you grace us with the wisdom that comes from being overwhelmed by your mysteries? 
and comforted by their implications. Lord, I pray particularly for those here this morning who are struggling with your purposes in their life. I pray that they would not do it on their own, but Lord, that they would wrestle with these things before the objective, unchanging, immovable, not going anywhere God, and that that would give them a correct and right perspective as to how they move forward, that it would imbue the things of today with greater purpose than they've ever experienced. Oh, you're so good to us, God, that we aren't simply just waiting for some experience in heaven, but Lord, you've given us purpose for today. Now, Lord, by your spirit, help us to live into that purpose, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now hear the benediction. It's so good to be with you. Now the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, who has loved you with an everlasting love and gives you everlasting life, now supports you with the everlasting arms in these days and all the days until Jesus comes again, amen.